Amen. All right, well, we're there in Ephesians chapter number 2. And, of course, on Wednesday night, we are going through the book of Ephesians. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and really theme by theme. And uh, this is now the third sermon in Ephesians 2. This is the final sermon in Ephesians 2. And I don't know if you remember, but the first time we were in Ephesians was before the holidays in Ephesians chapter 2, and we talked about the different families that you could be in, and the children of wrath, the children of disobedience, the children of light, and uh, the children of Adam, and of course, then last week we just spent uh, one sermon in verses 8, 9, and 10, and we just learned this theology of works and how works uh, does or doesn't and doesn't apply in the Christian life and where it does and doesn't. And then tonight, we are going to finish up the chapter uh, here in Ephesians chapter 2. And in this sermon, uh, we're going to be talking about two different groups. I want you to notice, you to really understand the end of this chapter, you have to understand that Paul is talking about two different groups. And it's clear in verse 11, notice what it says, Wherefore, remember that ye... Now, I want you to notice who he's talking to. He's talking to the Ephesian believers, and he says, Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. All right, so it's very clear that he's talking to Ephesians, to the Ephesian church, the Ephesian believers, and they're Gentiles. He says, Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision. So I want you to notice that there are two groups here, and the first group is called the uncircumcision, or the Gentiles, it's the Ephesians. He says, you, he says, ye being in time past, Gentiles in the flesh. But then notice, and he says, who are called uncircumcision. And then I want you to notice the second group, towards the end of verse 11 there, he says, he says, you are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hand. So, the uncircumcision, or those that are not circumcised, are the Gentiles in the flesh. And then, of course, the circumcision is in reference to the Jews. So there's two groups that he's referring to in, this, uh, in, the, in the latter part of this chapter. It's the Gentiles, the first group, the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, and then the second group, the circumcision and the Jews. Now, here's what I need you to understand. Today, there is a belief system, and unfortunately, it's, it's uh, been embraced by most of Christianity, where, and it's because of dispensationalism and dispensational theology has crept into many churches, and today people will teach you that there is no connection between uh, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament believers, or we should say there's no connection between uh, the, what, what they would call, and this is their wording, not mine, but what they would call the church or the Gentile church and uh, the nation of Israel. And what I want you to notice is that in this chapter, that doctrine and that teaching is completely put to bed. This doctrine, this, this chapter is extremely clear uh, that the Bible teaches that uh, the, the Jews, that there is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ, and that will become clear here tonight. And maybe you're here tonight and you say, well, I don't know what I believe about that, or I've never heard that, or I thought there was no connection between the church and, and Old Testament Israel. I would just encourage you to keep an open mind and just look at what the Bible actually says. Forget your preconceived ideas and just look at what the Bible says, and I think it will be extremely clear tonight as we just literally walk through this passage and read it and, and, and show you several things here, what the Bible teaches in regards to that. But you need to begin by understanding verse 11. 
Now, there's two groups here that are being referred to. You have the circumcision. He says, Wherefore remember ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision. That's group number one. And then he says, By that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, that's group number two, made by hands. We have two groups. So uh, here, here, and I'll, I'll give you three thoughts, three points, and there's lots of subpoints in between there. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go through it. But here's point number one for those of you taking notes. And I would encourage you to take notes because, again, this is kind of a controversial thing. Uh, people will say, oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe in replacement theology. I don't believe these things. And whatever you want to call it, you know, you've got to go with what the Bible says. Uh, we are Baptists, which means the Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And at the end of the day, we just got to look at what does the Bible say? What saith the Scripture? So I want you to notice, first of all, the separation between these two groups. Notice that these groups begin separated. Look at verse 12. He says that at the time ye... Now remember, based on verse 11, ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision. Right? That's the group we're talking about right now. He says that at the time ye, the Gentiles, were without Christ, being aliens. Now that word alien there simply means foreigner. Okay, It's not like an outer space from Mars alien. It's a foreigner. Uh, he says you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So notice he says, look, there was a time, Paul says, and, and, and he's telling us of the Gentiles' prior state. He said, this was your prior state. There was a time that at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers. Strangers is, again, just a different uh, word that means foreigner. He says, and were strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, if, we just, if the chapter ended there, then we would say, yeah, the dispensationalists are right. There is no connection between the church at Ephesus and the believers that make up the church and the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants that were given to Israel if you just stop there. But he says, notice, he says, he says that at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But notice verse 13. He says, in verse, in verse 12, he gives us the prior state of the Gentiles. What is it? It's that they were afar off. Notice verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off. He said, look, there was a time when you were afar off. That's your prior state. But notice their present state. Verse 13, he says, but now. All right, you've got to understand. Look at verse 12. At the time that ye, he said, you used to be without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You used to be strangers from the, covenant, from the covenants of promise. You used to be uh, with no hope and without God in this world. You used to be afar off. But he says, now, here's your present state in Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, notice what he says, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So he said, look, there was a separation between these two groups, the uncircumcision and the circumcision, the Gentiles in the flesh and the circumcision in the flesh made by him. There was a separation between the Gentiles and uh, the Jews, but he says, you used to be afar off, but now you are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So he says there was a separation, but now notice, now there's a uniting. So you've got two groups, they used to be separated. Now, he says, now they've been brought together. Now the Gentiles have drawn nigh to what? 
to the commonwealth of Israel, to the covenants and promises given to uh, the commonwealth of Israel. Now notice, in, in verses 14, 15, and, and, uh, and throughout, he begins to give us, a, give us reasons for the uniting of these two groups. Uh, so we saw the separation of two groups, and notice, secondly, the uniting of the two groups. Notice verse 14. For he is our peace, and the he there is referring to Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Who hath made both. Because again, the context is that we're talking about two groups. For he is our peace, who had made both, have, both what? Both the Gentiles, the uncircumcision, and Israel, the circumcision. He, it says, he hath made both, notice, one, and have broken down the middle wall of partition between us. See, he says, there used to be a wall of partition that was between both these groups, the Gentiles and the, and the nation of Israel, the uncircumcision and the circumcision. But he says, in Christ, because he is our peace, he hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now you say, well, how has he done that? How is it that Christ has made peace between the circumcision and the uncircumcision? Notice what he says. First of all, he made peace by getting rid of the ordinances. Notice verse 15. Having abolished, in his flesh, the enmity, even the law of commandments. Now today you'll have people who say, as New Testament believers, we are not under the law. The law doesn't apply. The law has been done away with. We don't have to follow the law at all. And look, you don't have to follow the law to be saved. We talked about that last week. You're not saved by the works of the law. But, but as New Testament believers, do we believe that just the entire law has been done away with and none of it applies anymore. You can go ahead and commit adultery and kill and steal. God's fine with it because we're not under the law. Is that what the Bible says? Well, notice what he says in verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments. So if we stop right there, you would say, well, look, it says that he abolished the law of commandments. But notice, did he abolish all of them? Notice what he says. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So I want you to notice, here's what he says. He says, he abolished the law and the commandments. You say, all of them? No, no, Paul would say. Only the ones contained in ordinances. And in fact, it was the removing of the ordinances that brought peace between these two groups and allowed them, allowed the Gentiles to be able to draw nigh. Now, Maybe you have or haven't heard that terminology, ordinances, is a biblical word. So we've got to answer this question to kind of help you with this. What are ordinances? What is he talking about? Uh, go to Romans chapter number 13. Keep your place in Ephesians 2. That's our text for tonight. Go to Romans 13. If you go backwards, you've got Ephesians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Romans. In the Bible, and, and specifically in the Old Testament, when we talk about the law, there are two sections to the law. There are the commandments, and then there are the ordinances. And in Ephesians 2.15, we are told that he abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, not all of them, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So he says, look, Jesus at the cross did away with a part of the law. That is completely scriptural. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that there was a change in the law made because of the uh, sacrifice of Christ. But what did he get rid of? Did he get rid of all of it? No. He got rid of the law of commandments that was contained in the ordinances. So we have to ask this question, what are ordinances? Now, 
In our Bible, the word ordinances has uh, different definitions, just like uh, any word can have multiple definitions. Sometimes the word ordinances is used synonymously with the word ordain. I'll show you that uh, an example of that. Romans chapter 13, if you're there, look at verse 1. Romans 13, 1. Now, Romans 13 is a chapter dealing with government and our, uh, our role under certain governments. Notice what he says, Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. I want you to notice it says that the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So I want you to notice there that we're told that the powers that be are ordained, they are commissioned, they are sanctioned by God, and if you resist the power, you're resisting the ordinance of God. Now, I showed you that because I want you to understand that sometimes, in your King James Bible, sometimes the word ordinance is used synonymously with the word ordain when something is ordained by God, meaning God has commissioned it, God has sanctioned it, God has uh, authorized it to exist. But I want you to notice that as you study the Bible, and go with me to the, uh, the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter number 2, in the Old Testament, if you find all the one and two books together, they're all, they're, they're all clustered together. First, second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles. Just find the books that have got the ones and the twos and go to second Chronicles chapter two. Sometimes in our King James Bible, the word ordinances is used synonymously with the word ordain. However, most of the time, if you were to do a search of the word ordinance in the Bible, you'll find that most of the time the word ordinances is used in reference to the symbolic, memorial, or ceremonial aspects or rituals of the Mosaic Law. Let me show that to you. And, I, and look, I, we could go, I, could, I could go to 20 verses to show this to you. I'm not going to take the time to do that. I'll just show you uh, a couple. Second Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 4. Here, we're speaking about the temple and the work of the temple. Notice, behold, I build a house, and that's a reference to the temple, in the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it, to dedicate what? The temple to him, and to burn before him, notice, sweet incense, and for the continual showbread, and for the burnt offerings, morning and evenings, on, on the Sabbaths, and on the new moons, and on the solemn feasts, of the Lord our God. Now look, when you're talking about the temple or the sanctuary, when you're talking about the incense, when you're talking about the showbread, when you're talking about the burnt offerings, the Sabbath days, the new moons, the solemn feasts, is any of that part of just the moral law of God? Where God, where God is just telling you, hey, it's morally wrong to lie. It's morally wrong to kill. It's morally wrong. No, when we're talking about offerings, showbread, incense, Sabbaths, new moons, feasts. This is all the ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic Law. It's the religious, ritual things that they did in order to show, uh, you know, to do what God asked them to do. To It was all symbolic. Now, I want you to notice what this is all referred to at the end of verse 4. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. 
So notice, what did the Bible call the house of God, the temple, the sweet incense, the showbread, the burnt offerings, the Sabbath, the new moons, the solid feet? What's that all called? It's called an ordinance. It was an ordinance forever to Israel. Now, we could go to a lot of passages. I can show you where the Passover is called an ordinance, where uh, different feasts are called ordinance, where different uh, uh, sacrifices are called ordinance. I'm not going to take some time to do that. You can study that out on your own if you'd like. I'll, I'll show it to you, though, in the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. In the New Testament, if you start at the end, at the book of Revelation, and you head backwards, you're going to have the book of Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter, James, and Hebrews. Jude, uh, Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter, James, and Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 9. I'm just, I'm just defining for you from the Bible what the word ordinance means. We saw in 2 Chronicles 2.4 that all of these things were encompassed in the ordinances for Israel forever. The sweet incense, the showbread, the burnt offerings, the new moons, the Sabbath, the solemn feast, the temple. In Hebrews 9.1, notice what the Bible says. Then verily, the first covenant, so the first testament, the, Mosaic, the old covenant, he says that first covenant had also ordinances of divine service. He says, look, that old covenant, it had in it some ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. He said, and what that means is, he, he says, they had a sanctuary here on earth and that sanctuary had ordinances. Now, if you read verses 2 through uh, 7, we're not going to take the time to do that. You'll notice that he lists, you know, all the things that are connected to that uh, tabernacle, to that sanctuary and the work that the priests were supposed to do. Notice verse 8. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. So he says, look, that old sanctuary had all these symbolic things, but the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Notice, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. He says, when that first tabernacle was, yet, was, was standing, People did not understand how to get to the holiest of all yet. That had not been revealed by the Holy Ghost yet. Notice verse 9, which was a figure. Do you see that word figure? Throughout our New Testament, it's all, they're also referred to as shadows or foreshadowing. What's a shadow? A shadow is a, a figure, not the real thing, but it's just a shadow of the real thing. Here we're told it was a figure. What does that mean? It was symbolic. All those Old Testament, you know, the Passover, the feast days, the tabernacles, the Sabbaths, the new moons, all of the things that the priest did, all of that was symbolic. They were pictures. They were representations of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, notice, dispensationalists, that could not make him that did the service perfect. Because dispensationalists will teach, oh, in the Old Testament, in that dispensation, they were saved by keeping the Mosaic Law. Oh, really? Well, nobody ever told the writer of Hebrews that that was the case. Because he says, hey, those gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Look, people have been saved all of history the same way by faith, by grace, through faith, by calling upon the Lord. Notice verse 10. Which stood only which stood only. Now look, you say, oh, the entire law was, was uh, done away. No, no, no. You see this word only? You know what that means? It means only this part of the law. 
The part of the law contained in ordinances, notice, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal, don't miss it, ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. And the time of Reformation was not a time that Martin Luther brought in, all right? The time of Reformation is the Lord Jesus Christ coming. Those meats, you say, do you follow the, 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 uh, you know, the Old Testament dietary laws? No, those, those, those meats and those drinks, those divers washings, those cardinals ordinances, they were just imposed on them for a time, until the time of Reformation. It was all a figure, it was all in the part of the law that would be contained under ordinances. They're called cardinal ordinances. And you say, well, why are you bringing this up? Here's why I'm bringing it up. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. According to Ephesians 2, Jesus got rid of, he abolished a section of the law. Which section? Everything that fell under an ordinance. Well, what's an ordinance? An ordinance is anything that's symbolic, anything that's, that's ceremonial, anything that's a memorial. It's not, look, he didn't get rid of thou shalt not kill. God still doesn't want you to have a relationship with your aunt or your cousin, all right? Those things are still a sin. What did he get rid of? Notice Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, all of them? No, contained in ordinances. You say, why? Because look, remember, this is how he brought peace between the Jews and the Gentiles, and allowed the Gentiles to draw nigh. Why? Because the ordinances kept the Gentiles out. Right? I mean, the Jews and the nation of Israel would say, no, we've got our temple, and we've got our rituals, and you're unclean, and you're this, and you're that. And the Bible says that at the cross, Jesus, he got rid of all that. Ordinances, done. You say, why? Because all of that was a figure of him. Once he came, he says, you can be done with it. Don't, no need it anymore. It's done. The law of commandments contained in ordinances. He says they're abolished in his flesh. The enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. This is not the only place the Bible says that. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Are there any Ephesians? You got Philippians? Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. So don't let anybody tell you, oh, Jesus got rid of the law. The Bible says that he came to fulfill the law. The Bible says, if anything, he upped the ante on the law. He kept telling people, hey, you think that you shouldn't uh, uh, commit adultery, I tell you, don't even look on a woman to lust after her. He said, or else you're committing adultery in your heart. He didn't come to get rid of the law, but he did get rid of a section of the law. Colossians 2, look at verse 14. Colossians 2, 14, notice, blotting out the handwriting of, don't miss it, of all the law in the Old Testament, he just got rid of it, that whole, you know, don't even worry about reading all those chapters with Moses, they're not, they don't apply to you anymore. Is that what it says? Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way. It was a wall partition. It was in our way, but he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Did he nail the law of the cross? No, he nailed the ordinances. He nailed the part of the law that was contained to the ordinances. So look, only the ordinances. What are the ordinances? They're the symbolic, memorial, ceremonial. You cannot look up the word ordinance in your Old Testament and walk away with saying anything other than the ordinances were all of the feasts, 
the Sabbaths, the washings, the special, everything that was ceremonial, symbolic, memorial, those are the ordinances. And what does the Bible tell us in the New Testament? Jesus got rid of the ordinances. They're done. Levitical priesthood, done. Dietary uh, uh, guidelines, done. You can go ahead and eat pork. You, can, you don't have to keep the Sabbath. You, don't have to, you can work on the Sabbath if you want. Uh, you can, he, he says all that's gone because all he got rid of was the ordinances. In fact, he brought peace. He made peace by getting rid of the ordinances. The only law of commandments that were abolished were those contained in the ordinances. And the ordinances are the ceremonial, memorial, symbolic, shadow, figurative part of the law. Now, I want to show you just another application real quick, and we'll get back to Ephesians. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because we as Baptists generally believe in the New Testament that we've got some ordinances as well. In fact, we refer to them as the two ordinances. And they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and lately, I've, I've, I've heard people attack this. They'll say, oh, you got that from the Protestants. But wait a minute. I want you to notice that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, the Bible says this. Now I praise you, brethren, this is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances. I want you to notice it's plural. Ordinances, as I delivered them, plural, to you. And then in the same chapter, later on in the chapter, he goes on and talks about the Lord's Supper. And people say, oh, no, you got that from the Protestants. That's not from the Bible. Well, hold on a second. If in the Old Testament, the ordinances were the part of the Old Testament that were ceremonial, that were symbolic, that were a religious ritual, that were a shadow, and then in the New Testament, he mentions ordinances, plural, and then even begins to talk about the Lord's Supper. Let me tell you something about the Lord's Supper. It's not the actual blood and body of Jesus Christ. It's all symbolic. It's just a ceremony. We do it in memory, in memorial. You know what baptism is? Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. That hard water does nothing for your sin. In fact, it might, you, know, you might need to put some lotion on after you get baptized. Well, it's symbolic. When you stand there and the water crosses your body, that's a symbol of the cross. When you go down into the water, that's a symbol of the death. When you come up out of the water, that's a symbol of the resurrection. It doesn't do anything for your soul. It's just symbolic. It's a memorial. So look, if in the Old Testament, all of these symbolic, figurative, uh, ceremonial, memorial rituals were called ordinances, and then in the New Testament, Paul refers to ordinances, refers to the Lord's Supper, then how did we get that from the Protestants? It's figurative. It's, it's symbolic. It's a memorial. They're called ordinances. So look, as Baptists, yeah, we believe in the two ordinances. Are you got, who do you get that from? Uh, the Bible. I just showed it to you. Because the Bible tells us that the definition of an ordinance is not all of the law. It is just the symbolic, ceremonial, religious rituals, memorial rituals that were done just as a foreshadow. And we still do those today as a foreshadow. We, we do the Lord's Supper to show the body and the sacrifice of Christ. We do the, Lord, uh, the baptism to show the sacrifice of Christ. So it's scriptural to call them ordinances. That's what the Bible says. And look, the Bible teaches that Jesus the cross, when it comes to the Old Testament, what do you get rid of? The ordinances. He got rid of the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's what the Bible says. And look, if you're a Baptist, then you just got to figure out what does the Bible say? If the Bible says it, that's what we believe. 
Go to back to Ephesians 2, look at verse 15. So notice, he made peace by removing the division, the wall of partition between us. What was it? The ordinances. That's what divided the Jews and the Gentiles. He said he got rid of it. But notice, there's another thing he did to bring peace. Not only did he bring peace by getting rid of the ordinances, he made peace by preaching the gospel. The gospel of peace, Ephesians 2.15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain. Now, what does the word twain mean? It means of two. Of what two? Well, the context is we're talking about two different people here, two different groups. The Gentiles, the uncircumcision, Israel, the circumcision. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Notice this chapter, the end of this chapter is all about how he took two and he made them one. And the two are the circumcision and the uncircumcision. How did he do it? Verse 16. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. How did he do it? By the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, because at the cross he got rid of the ordinances, but at the cross he fulfilled the message of the gospel. Notice verse 17. And came and preached peace to you. To who? To the Gentiles, the uncircumcision, which were afar off, and to them, notice, that were nigh. Oh, he just preached the gospel to the Gentiles. No, he preached it to ye, to you, which were far off, and he preached it to them that were not. Go to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3. Let me give you another dispensational doctrine that's a wrong doctrine. Today, people get this idea that, oh, the Jews, they, they get a free pass just because they were born Jewish or something. You know, they can go ahead and deny Christ they can be anti-Christ, they can reject Christ, they, they can blaspheme Christ, but they somehow are just going to get a free pass, and it's going to be A-OK, just because they were born. You know that the Bible says that God is no respecter of persons? You know that the gospel has to be preached and received by both Jew and Gentile? He came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Go to Romans 3 and verse 9. Notice what the Bible says. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we, now Paul here is speaking as a Jew. He's, he's speaking as a, as, as a descendant of the Jews in the flesh. He says, are we better than they? Referring to the Gentiles. He has this question. Because today you talk to, to, to people out of the synagogue of Satan and they'll act like they're better than the Gentiles. He says, what then are we better than they? No, in no wise for we have before proved both, notice, Jew and Gentile, that they are all under sin. Look, it doesn't matter what family you were born to, what part of the world you were born in, what your descendancy is. If you are born, if you're a human being, you're under sin. You're a sinner. You need salvation like anyone else. Romans 3.29, you're there in Romans 9, look at verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing he is, it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Let me, let me, let, let me be clear. The only Jews that are going to make it to heaven are going to make it there the same way you and I and any Gentile got there by placing their faith in Jesus Christ, period. Amen. No, nobody's getting a free pass into anywhere. You've got, look, 
Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. He is the God of both Jews and Gentiles, and He will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. That's the only way you get in. That's the only way you get saved. So He made peace. He made peace, and He brought these two groups together. How did He do it? Well, He made peace by getting rid of the ordinances, which are these symbolic, ceremonial, figurative, shadow part section of the Mosaic Law. He made peace by preaching the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. And he made peace by giving both access. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, look at verse 18. For through him, through who? Jesus. We, we both, what both, Paul? The Gentile and the Jew. The uncircumcision and the circumcision. For, for through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Look, he says, look, there was a time, there was a time when, when the Gentiles were afar off. They were afar off because there was a time when the only access to God was through the temple. There was a time when the only access to God was through the priesthood, through the high priest, and through the sacrifices. And if, if they, if the, if the, and, and the Jews did not do a good job of preaching that and reaching the world in their time, and the Gentiles were afar off. But when Jesus came, He got rid of that. They that were afar off, now they can draw nigh through the blood of Christ. Why? Because He got rid of the ordinances. Why? Because He preached the gospel to both. Why? Because He gave both access. See, I don't need a priest. I don't need a Levitical priest. I don't need a Catholic priest. I don't need any priest. Through the Holy Spirit, I have access to God the Father. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners. You used to be strangers. You used to be foreigners. You used to be uh, uh, far off from the commonwealth of Israel and from the covenants of Israel. He says, but now you're no more strangers and foreigners. But fellow citizens with the saints... Wait a minute, Pastor Jimenez, are you trying to teach that Gentiles are part of the nation of Israel? I think I just read it. I don't even think I comment. I just read it. You were no more... Str- no, 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 no. Well, I took a Bible college class and they said that the church is just a parenthetical uh, part of history and has nothing to do with the nation of Israel. And God just has them on time out and He's dealing with us and then He's going to bring them back, but there's no connection. No more strangers and foreigners. That's what it says but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Call it replacement theology, call it whatever you want. The Bible teaches that in Christ He united Gentile and Jew. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. Well, that's not what I heard on the radio. Then turn off the stinking radio and just read the Bible. Well, that's not what I heard on TV. Then stop listening to the TV preacher that's teaching you something wrong and just look at the Bible. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We started off by talking about the separation between these two groups. One was near and one was afar off. Then we talked about the uniting of these two groups. How did he do it? He did it by getting rid of the ordinances. He did it by preaching the gospel to both, and they both must, through faith, by faith, accept the gospel to be saved, period. 
He did it by giving both axes. We, we don't have a need for a temple. Look, we don't need for a temple. He said, you used to have to go to the temple to have access. Now, in the Old Testament, you went to the temple. In the New Testament, you are the temple. In, in, in the Old Testament, you needed a priest. In the New Testament, you are a priest. In the Old Testament, you needed Israel. In the New Testament, you, ju- you just you need Jesus. In fact, that's what all anyone's ever needed is Jesus. So there's a separation, there's a uniting. But thirdly tonight, let me show it to you quickly, there's a foundation of both groups. Now, I want you to notice, because this, this is interesting. Because today, and again, our dispensational friends will teach, well, God had this one plan in the Old Testament, that didn't work out, so then he sent his son, and then they killed him. You know, never saw that one coming. So now he had to figure out, we're plan B. Look, God knows from the beginning from the end. His plan is, is perfect, period. And, and today you'll have people, they'll, they'll say, oh, th- this is, the New Testament is just a different plan from the Old Testament. In fact, today there's preachers who say, we've got to unhinge the New Testament from the Old Testament. They're not even connected. And that's their way of not having to deal with passages they don't want to deal with, like Leviticus, and where God puts the death penalty on homosexuality and things like that. But I want you to notice the foundation of these two groups. In Ephesians 2.20, the Bible says this, and are built upon the foundation. He says, you're built upon the foundation, notice, of the apostles, New Testament, and prophets, Old Testament. And here's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2. He teaches that Jesus is this fusion of the Old and the New Testament. He says, you, he says, you, you, these two groups. He said, if, if I were to sit anyone in these two groups down, the circumcision or the uncircumcision, and ask them, what's your foundation? The circumcision would say, well, the prophets are. And the uncircumcision would say, well, the apostles are. And Paul says, look, you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And they would say, yeah, separate, different, different testaments. But he says, no, here's what you don't understand. Both the apostles and the prophets are on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. See, you say the apostles are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, obviously. But you know the prophets were too? The prophets were on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Because he is the chief cornerstone. Sometimes we read these, ter- this term, these terms in the Bible and we think they're just kind of figurative or they're nice or whatever. Chief cornerstone is actually a thing when it comes to construction, especially ancient construction. I think they still even do it now when they're doing masonry and things. A chief cornerstone, let me give you the definitions. It is the rock upon which the weight of the entire structure rests. It's also the stone representing the starting place in the construction of a monumental building. So in, in, the, in the times of Paul, when they would build a building, a structure, they would dig down and they would lay a foundation that was made up of big stones. And the first stone would kind of be set there and based on where that stone was set, the rest of the foundation would be laid. And it was done in such a way that the weight of the entire structure really rested on that first stone. That first stone held the weight 
of the entire foundation, and that first stone represented the starting place of the entire foundation. And let me tell you something. When it comes to whatever book in the Bible, the foundation of that book is on Jesus Christ. And to understand it, you must start with Jesus. You say, how can I understand the book of Leviticus? Start with Jesus. How can I understand Deuteronomy? Start with Jesus. How can I understand the book of Ezekiel? Start with Jesus. It's all about Him. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation and the starting point of the entire thing. All new, it's all about, look, it's always been about Jesus. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Let me give you a few verses. We'll finish up. Luke chapter 24. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 24. Look at verse 25. This is the disciples, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus died. He's resurrected. They're confused. They're not sure what's going on. Jesus actually meets them on the road to Emmaus. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. We're not going to go through it. I just want you to get the context. Luke 24, verse 25. Then he said unto them, this is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, talking to two of his disciples. They're on the road. They're all confused about Jesus, and they thought he was the Messiah. Then he dies. They're like, now what? Notice what he said unto them. Oh, fools. And slow of heart to believe all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He says, haven't you read the prophets? Don't you know that Christ, the Messiah, was supposed to suffer these things? Look at verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning at Moses, the books of Moses, and through all the prophets, I mean, that would have been quite a conversation to be walking down the road with the resurrected Christ, and he's just going through every prophet, every book of the Old Testament, just saying, here's where it's actually referring to me. Here's where it's actually a picture of me. Here's where actually it's a figure of me. It's a symbol of me. It's actually about me. It's all about me! It's about me. It's about Jesus. He expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Go to John 5 and verse 45. So don't tell me that this is plan B. And that God, you know, he, he wanted to do work, salvation, and that didn't work. It's not plan B. It's always been about Christ. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. John 5 and verse 45. You're there in Luke. Just flip one book over. John 5, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you. Jesus said, I don't even need to accuse you. There's already one that accuses you. You want to know who he is? Even Moses. Please, please understand this. All these Jews, these Christ-rejecting Jews today, and look, we, 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 we don't think of them any less than any other unbeliever. The unbelieving Jew needs the gospel like the Muslim needs the gospel, like the Hindus need the gospel, like unbelieving so-called Christians need the gospel. But you know what? They think, they think that they're trusting in Moses, and this is what Jesus would say. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. He says, you think you trust Moses, but you know what? Moses is going to accuse you on the day of judgment. Why? Verse 46, for had ye believed Moses... He's what he's saying. He's saying, you don't really believe Moses. Because if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. Say, why would you say that? For he wrote of me. Because the entire Bible, the entire Bible, has a scarlet thread running through it, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, let me show you one more. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. You're there in John, just flip one book over. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Acts 10, 43. Acts 10, 43, the Bible says this, To him, that's Jesus, give all the prophets witness. All the prophets? All the prophets. Even Zephaniah? Even Zephaniah. Even Malachi? Even Malachi. Zechariah? All of them. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remissions of sins. Pastor, how can I understand the book of Daniel? Look for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. All of it. How can I, how can I understand you know, all these prophetic, the minor prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. How can I understand all of these books? All, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. If you, want to, you, if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand God, if you want to understand who God is, you must understand that all of it has its weight upon Jesus and you must start with Jesus. That's why Jesus said, he said, you want to know the Father? He said, just, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because He is the starting point of everything biblical and everything God. He is the chief corner stone. It starts with Him. It's based on Him. It's grounded in Him. It's resting upon Him. Go to Ephesians 2. We're going to finish up Ephesians 2, the last two verses. Then we're going to go to 1 Peter 2, and then we'll be done, all right? Ephesians 2, then we're going to go to 1 Peter 2. If you want to... Try to figure that out. If you start at Revelation and you head back, you got Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st, John, uh, 2nd Peter, and then you got 1st Peter. Ephesians 2, look at verse 21. So he, he, he tells us this. He says, look, there were these two groups. One was nigh and one was afar off. But we made peace and he reconciled them and he brought them all together. You say, how do you do it? Well, by getting rid of the ordinances and by preaching the gospel of peace to them. And by giving both access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. And, and, and he says, and your foundation of the prophets and the apostles, it's always been on Jesus Christ. Because he is the chief cornerstone. And then he goes on with this illustration of a building, verse 21. In whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple. In the Lord. We don't have a physical temple anymore. You don't have to make... You, look, you don't have to go to Israel. You don't have to do a, 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 a pilgrimage to Israel. We are the holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. See, those were carnal ordinances. It was a physical building with physical sacrifices. It was all figurative, but now... We're a holy nation, a peculiar people, a holy temple. We're built up in God. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll finish, we'll finish here. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. So look, I hope it's clear. I mean, Ephesians 2 is clear. There were, there were two, now there was one. And it's in Jesus because it's all about Jesus. I mean, that's pretty much the point of the sermon, the point of the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 4. We'll finish up right here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, To whom coming as unto a living stone. That's what you and I are. We're living stones. This allowed indeed of men. Men don't like it. Men don't like us. But chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Do we offer up carnal sacrifices? No, spiritual sacrifices. Do you understand the difference? Paul would say it this way. He would say that we should give our members as a sacrifice. He would say that we give ourselves a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Notice verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scriptures, behold... Actually, I'm sorry, look at verse 5 again. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Why are we acceptable? Look, the only way that you and I are acceptable, and if you get anything out of the book of Ephesians, is this, that our value is found in, in Christ. It is because of Christ. We are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, that he that believeth on him, that believeth on who? The chief cornerstone, shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. I mean, isn't that true? Isn't he precious to us that believe? But unto them which be disobedient, to those who don't want to obey the gospel, to those who don't want to accept him, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. He says he's the chief cornerstone. Here's what he says. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. And you can get founded on him, or you can get tripped up by him. You know the unbelieving Jews? They're getting tripped up by him. He's a rock of offense to them. But to us, to us, he's precious. To us who believe, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. It's by our heads and I have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Lord, thank you for just the clarity of Scripture. I mean, I don't know how anybody could read the last part of Ephesians chapter 2 and walk away believing anything other than what the Bible teaches. That there were two groups that he united through Christ because it's about Christ and it's always been about Christ. And whatever title or label we want to put on it, Lord, help us to always give the Bible its reverence and help us, Lord, to always allow the Bible to be the authority. When it comes to defining words like ordinance, let us allow the Bible to define it for us. When it comes to what we believe, no matter what other religions and uh, churches say, help us, Lord, to just decide, you know what, if the Bible says it, I believe it, period. That's all I need. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we continue to try to study the book of Ephesians and learn it together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to draw close to you and help us always to remember that you, that our lives are founded upon you. You are the chief cornerstone, not just of the Bible, but of our lives. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.